Good morning and welcome to all of you. Uh, a holiday service here, or I should say a service here following or around close to a holiday is always very unpredictable. It feels like it's either a very small crowd or a very large crowd, and we are blessed with a large crowd this morning and grateful that each one of you are here. <clears throat> You know, Thanksgiving has a way of bringing families together. Um, around here, at least, they talk about that the day before Thanksgiving is the busiest travel day of the year. And uh, I saw one article this week that said you should figure about three times normal travel times on Wednesday um, from the already long commutes. and so. Uh, that just gives you a little bit of an idea of, of the amount of people that are traveling and families are traveling to be together. <clears throat> and then there's the iconic pictures that we think of or the imagery that we think of related to Thanksgiving. Family around a table with turkey and all the trimmings. I always think of Norman Rockwell's classic painting from 1943 um, called Freedom from Want. And uh, it's just one of those images that sticks in my mind when I think about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a time for families to grow closer, to play games, spend time together, make memories, express gratitude to God and each other for what we have. But it's interesting as well <clears throat> that this uh, great traditional family holiday has be, been hijacked in a lot of ways with the consumerism of Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. And more and more it seems to be invading even the Thanksgiving space. Um, you know, how much time do we spend looking at colorful advertisements of things that we don't have and that we don't really need, but it's a good deal on, a, on Thanksgiving Day? And stores start opening Thanksgiving evening already, which ends up disrupting from the family time uh, together for both shoppers and employees. And the frenzy of needing something more than what we already have neutralizes the gratitude that we were expressing just minutes or hours earlier. And the closeness that we experience around the Thanksgiving table, like is illustrated in a picture like this, is replaced by competitiveness and selfishness and trying to secure one of these best deals that are available in very in limited quantities. Maybe this scenario gives us a picture of how the church, as a family, has been hijacked by the individualistic consumerism within the modern Western church. Uh, I've entitled this morning's message, The Church is Our Family, and it's actually building on, or maybe completing might be a better way of putting it, the sermon from two weeks ago. And so those of you that weren't here two weeks ago uh, don't have quite all the context. <clears throat> but the New Testament church, uh, or, or the New Testament, was lived and written from a very different cultural mindset and perspective than our modern Western civilization. 
the Middle Eastern culture was what they call a strong group culture. And simply put, in that kind of a culture, the group has priority over the individual. And the individual makes decisions that benefit the group rather than themselves. And here's a quote from uh, Christian Origins and Cultural Anthropology that defines this a bit uh, <clears throat> more in a technical way. What this means is, first of all, that the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over individual members. <clears throat> And some examples of strong group uh, thinking or even uh, culture within our very individualistic culture is gangs, uh, the military, or uh, sports teams, where the group, what the group accomplishes is more important than what an individual does, where the individual desires are secondary to the group's goals. But in the Bible culture, well, within the Bible culture, the blood family, your blood family, your, your relatives, was the group to which most individuals deferred, or that was the primary group. In fact, the blood family took precedence over marriage. Siblings were more important in that culture than one's spouse. And that's the context in which Jesus called his disciples and that the church was established, and that the New Testament was written. And so when Jesus talks about or, and calling his disciples and tells them that they are to lead their father and mother, brother and sister, this was not some abstract idea, but it was literally changing their primary group allegiance from their blood family to that of their new spiritual family, the church. And the language throughout the New Testament is remarkable uh, on this. When we, start, when we recognize this and start reading the New Testament in that way, he uses, the, the language used throughout the New Testament is, uses family language. And the, the church was to become that primary group that individuals prioritize over every other relationship. And just for an example of that, uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 1, and I want to just read a passage here, and notice the words that are used to describe <clears throat> this incredible blessing. And uh, once we start thinking about it, and the New Testament is largely written to groups as well, and I'll mention that just here in a bit. But verses 3 through 14, and he uses the... The term father, God the father, I mean, that's a familiar term for us, but that's not coincidental. And then also that we're sons. He doesn't use daughters, but that's implied as well. Adoption, inheritance, these are all terms about how the, in the context of how a family operates and the context of being a group. Verse 3, blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, and which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Again, we're heirs. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of faith, the gospel of your salvation and believed him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is just one passage, but as you read the New Testament, you see this kind of language throughout. And it is primarily written, most of the New Testament is written for and to groups of people, churches, the Jews, and so forth. The nouns and the pronouns that are used to address the audience are primarily plural, but the pronoun you, uh, we tend to think of singular often in our mindset, but most times in the New Testament, that's actually referring to a group of people, not one individual. Now, we live in a hyper-individualistic culture that values personal expression above any group identification. Uh, Joseph Hellerman in his book, When the Church Was a Family, makes this quote, social scientists have a label for the perversive cultural orientation of modern American society that makes it so difficult for us to stay connected and grow together in community with one another. They call it radical individualism. What this amounts to is simple enough. We in America have been socialized to believe that our own dreams, goals, and personal fulfillment ought to take precedence over the well-being of any group, our church or our family, for example, to which we belong. The immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health of the group, so we leave and withdraw rather than stay and grow up when the going gets rough in the church or the home. And um, so that that gives us a description uh, of the kind of environment that we live in. And we can't change the fact that we're living in a Western civilization that's very different from first century and Middle Eastern culture. But I do think that when we recognize that, it helps us better understand and interpret scripture and uh, even how we live our lives. We don't have to be dictated by this radical individualism of our culture. We can be countercultural and choose to live less individualistic. It's not easy, but it can be done. And the church, as we see it expressed in the New Testament, is designed to function best in the context of a strong or stronger group mentality, like a blood family. And that's certainly counter to uh, the 21st century America that we live in, but that is how the church was designed. Think about it this way. The church is a family of adopted siblings. 
the church is our family. You and I are like blood brothers and sisters in God's big family. And when we understand this, that, that that's the premise from which the New Testament is written, it makes a lot more sense. It doesn't make it any easier, but it does uh, make sense because it is still countercultural. And it's hard to set aside personal ambitions and uh, opinions and perspectives for the good of the group, our family, which is the church. But when I, as I read scripture, I believe that's exactly what God the Father is calling us to do. And when we do, we become a family that's attractive and appealing to others whom others want to be a part of as well. And we do need each other. Whether we uh, realize it or not, we need each other. We're not designed to function in isolation or completely independent from other people. Our culture wants us to believe that we'll be most fulfilled and the most happy if I'm doing exactly what I want to do. The idea of self-actualization. What could be better than actually being able to do what I want to do? And it shouldn't matter what others think if I'm expressing myself fully and following my heart, then I will be the happiest. But is that really true? I think that this is a uh, clever and a deceptive lie crafted by Satan to counteract, directly counteract, God's divine design. The truth is that we do need each other, and we're never going to find true fulfillment in selfishly pursuing our own agenda. And I think that's true especially in the context of church. A church that's a defined group of people living life together. It's a functional and diverse family of adopted siblings from a huge variety of backgrounds. Scripture uses the analogy of the human body to illustrate the diversity and interconnectedness and value of each and every member. The body works, the human body works because diverse individual components are working together to do far more than any one of them could accomplish on their own. We need each other. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 12 now, and I'd like to read several verses from there as well that gives us that picture of what the, the reality that we do really need each other, whether we recognize it or not. I'm going to start, this is a familiar passage, we're going to start reading in verse uh, 14. <clears throat> I'd like several verses that I'm just going to kind of highlight as we go along here. This first one for sure. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. It's not a body if there's not multiple, if there's more than one member. If the foot should say because I am not, of the hand, not a hand I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as, as it is, 
listen to this, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. It goes on, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, and that, there, and that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. One way to think about this is that Radically individualistic BBs are never more than just a BB. Uh, they're just going to be what they are. And I don't have uh, a can of BBs here this morning, but you could dump BBs together and they're together, but they're not, they're just what that is. They're still just a BB. And, but when we allow ourselves to be part of something bigger than ourselves, we do lose a sense of our individual identity but we also gain a greater identity, and we could become something far bigger than just an individual BB. We can be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves. And not only that, when we allow ourselves to do that, we can actually be shaped into something that's attractive, that's useful. That doesn't mean there won't be rough times that come, and we may get messed up, uh, or we may not have that Beauty, but we can always be put back together and, again, be put into a shape that is useful to God and to those. But the reality is that it means that when these stressful times come, is that we don't get up and walk away, but that we stick it out and we stay committed. And when we do, God is able to reshape us into something beautiful and useful for him, far greater than what we would be able to do if we were just an individual BB doing our own thing. It's only in the context of living life with others that we find lasting fulfillment. The church is a group of others that God has designed to best exemplify what his uh, genuine purpose is and, and the way to find genuine purpose. The church consists of individuals, of siblings from a wide range of backgrounds that have been adopted into God's divine family. Our brothers and sisters are just that. They're adopted family members. And those of us that have or have or have had Young children know that it's important that children learn to treat themselves, treat others kindly and appropriately. And uh, there's likely some expectations that your children knew growing up, um, like sharing, taking turns, playing nice, saying I'm sorry, saying thank you. Um, those are all things that we have instilled and want to instill in our children. And in a similar way, 
our loving Father in heaven is wanting to instill those kinds of expectations on us as well and, and how his children interact with each other. The ushers would come up here. I have a couple of some handouts to pass out. <clears throat> Uh, I hope there's enough. There should be enough for all the adults and youth, I believe. If not, uh, I can make other copies available uh, later. About 35 years ago, um, Simon Schrock wrote a book called One Anothering. And uh, this was before my time in Virginia. And, but this book was based on a series of sermons that he preached here focusing on verses with the phrase one another in them. And, uh, and as I've been studying and thinking about the New Testament in terms of groups rather than individuals, I started noticing how often there are instructions given that are impossible to live out ourselves, but involves others. Others are mentioned in the verse, and it has to do with how we relate to each other. You know, families sometimes have, a, uh, have family rules or um, house rules that they have on the wall that shows this is what we as a family, how we want to live. And I believe that God, our Father, has established family rules for the large, diverse family of believers that call the church. And while not biblical terms... Um, these are the types of concepts that I think that all of us can relate to. And, and some, like, it's not in scripture, but these are a few things that I think, you know, like sticking up for each other, hanging out together, looking out for each other, uh, being there for each other. In a nutshell, that is the type of thing that God the Father is outlining that we as believers, how we treat each other. These verses that I have listed on this sheet of paper that you're receiving uh, all reference others directly or else strongly implied. I can't say for sure. And there's 40 statements on here that I noticed that give instruction or insight into how we are to relate to each other as the siblings of God's family. You know, we're adults. But like children, we sometimes don't get along the way that we should. And God the Father wants us to understand what he expects of his children. And when you consider these 40 things that are here, in the sense of our own families here on planet Earth, these are very common sense expectations that I think most of us would have for all our children. Now, not all of them would apply to a family, but most of them would very much translate right to a, a family setting with your children. I'm going to go over these briefly, and uh, what I want you to do is to take this home and think about it. Um, I mentioned there at the top, prayerfully meditate on each of these, maybe several a day, and honestly evaluate yourself before God in relation to your church family. How is it that these live out in relation to my church family. How are you doing? What areas is our Father wanting to refine or improve my life? And I'd like for you to just honestly evaluate yourself. Um, again, I'm going to read over these 
briefly, I'm not going to be making just a lot of comments on this, but I want you to think about what it is and to the extent that God is asked, our Father is asking us how we treat each other. Starting in the first column there, love each other sacrificially. I was thinking, you know, if I had to boil it down to one characteristic, I think it would be this. That if love, if we truly loved each other sacrificially the way that God would like, much of the rest of these would fall into place. Uh, maybe not entirely, but I believe that that probably is, is one of the key, uh, key characteristics here. As I did that, I'm using the term each other down through here for all of these. That's not the language used in scripture, and I even paraphrased a few of these just to put it in a little bit more everyday language. But it's, I believe it is what the verses are saying. And one reason is the term one another, we get so familiar with it, it's more uh, of a Bible. We think about it as a Bible versus saying that. And so I intentionally used each other um, to emphasize these. So we're to love each other sacrificially. We're to honor each other. Again, honor is something that is repeatedly given in the New Testament. That's part of that Middle Eastern culture as well, that we don't do so well or we don't elevate to that degree today. <clears throat> Live in harmony with each other. Reserve judgment from each other. Accept each other. Be affectionate toward each other. Be agreeable with each other. Comfort each other. Serve each other. Bear with each other. Don't provoke each other. Preserve or maintain unity with each other. Use gifts to benefit each other. Speak truth with each other. Build up each other. Show kindness to each other. Submit to each other. Forgive each other. This is another one that I think would rise right up to there to the top of importance with love, is forgiving each other. Admonish or warn each other. Inspire each other. Spend time with each other. Resist the urge to speak ill of each other. Practice hospitality toward each other. Gladly give to each other. Use gifts to help each other. Be at peace with each other. Wash each other's feet. Be members of each other. Show impartiality to each other. Instruct each other. Wait or tarry for each other. Show humility to each other. Encourage or exhort each other. Confess sins to each other. Pray for each other. Have sympathy for each other. Fellowship with each other. Don't be puffed up against each other. Don't bring lawsuits against each other. Don't envy each other. Like I say, this is a list of 40 of them. I will not even pretend to say that this is a comprehensive list. Uh, 
But I guarantee you it gives us some all something to think about. Um, we're human. And I can assure you that we're probably not, we are not consistently doing all of these um, as individuals. There's areas that each one of us can work on. And I think it's important that we consider these verses and evaluate ourselves. How am I relating? How am I expressing these in relation to my fellow church family? I'm struck as I study this, as I've contemplated this, that if we started thinking about church the way that we do our own families as the most important relationships, the highest priority in our lives, with more concern about the family's long-term success than my personal desires and ambition, what would actually happen? I believe that God could work wonders with a group, a church group that operated in that fashion. Because we are children of God. We are adopted into God's family. We are brothers and sisters in the same family. We're siblings in God's family. And whether we admit it or not, our actions and our responses to each other to our spiritual siblings may be more reflective of our own children than that of mature adults that we think we are. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that God the Father actually calls us His children. He doesn't call us teenagers or youth or young adults. He calls us children. And I think that that's for a reason. And His expectation is that we conduct ourselves in a loving manner to all our adopted siblings, and uh, I'm throwing in here how we might characterize or we hear our children characterize each other at times, even if we're weird or different, even if they're weird or different, we're still to carry out and to act ourselves, conduct ourselves in a manner that is... Uh, appreciated by our Father. The church is our spiritual family, and whether we like it or not, it's the group that God has placed us in. So in conclusion, just again, wrapping, uh, wrapping things up and summarizing here a bit, the church, and I want to emphasize the church that we're a part of, we're from a diversity of churches here this morning, but the church is our family. And in the Middle East, at the time, well, it was and is even today, there's a strong group culture where the group carries higher priority than any individual desires and ambitions. The blood family was that strongest bond within that group, their primary identification and purpose, and then Jesus established the church, adopting believers 
into that family of God. And the church replaced the blood family as that primary group. The church is God's family. Sons and daughters adopted were heirs of God's inheritance. We are a family. The church is our family. Our Father cares about how his children behave, especially toward each other. So let's allow the Holy Spirit to refine us in those areas that he identifies. Because we are the church, we're family, and the church is our family. I'd like for you to take out your hymn books and turn to number 386 in the Mennonite hymnal. And I'd like for us to sing this um, before the benediction and pay attention to the words here as it talks about how we uh, relate to each other. mentioned that everyone is invited for a fellowship meal downstairs immediately following the service, so um, just wanted to make sure everyone was aware of that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with gratitude this morning and ask that you would um, bless us as we go from here. I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your spirits leading in our lives and as we relate to each other. I pray that we, as believers, could be reflective of your desires for your family, your adopted family of, of believers. I pray that you would bless our fellowship as we continue that downstairs over food. I pray that you would bless the food to our nourishment. And may we use it in a way to honor you. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.